This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 242, an interview with Steve Snyder about his book, Shot Down, the true story of pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17, Susan Ruth. Shot Down covers the events leading up to and after the crew of the B-17, Susan Ruth, is shot down over the French-Belgian border on February 8, 1944. Of the 10-man crew, some died, some ended up in prison camps, and some evaded capture. As for the pilot Howard Snyder, find out how he evaded capture from the Gestapo for seven long months. So, Mr. Snyder, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on the program. Absolutely. So I have to say, first off, um, when, I, when I hear about books like yours, I have two questions. Two questions immediately come to mind for me because this, this is a personal experience for you. So one, I would love to know how this book came about. If you could just tell us a little bit about the journey of your book. Okay. Well, I retired from my uh, career job in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked the uh, 36 years for a company called Vision Service Plan, VSP, which provides uh, vision care benefits that corporations offer their employees for eye exam, glasses, contact lenses. Mm. I was in sales and sales management there, and I I had no writing background uh, at all. But after I retired, I had the time to really delve into my dad's uh, war history in in more detail. Mm -hmm. And my parents had kept a lot of material from the war years. Uh, and I had no intention of writing a book at that time. I just wanted to go through everything, kind of organize it and uh, find out more. And there were two items that were really uh, significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a diary that my do- dad wrote while he was missing in action. And it was absolutely or is absolutely riveting. Um, and the other item was uh, all the letters that my uh, dad had written to my mother while he was stationed in England uh, during the war. And I'd never read those. They were in a box sitting there. But uh, sitting down and reading those uh, was just fascinating. Right. And I became fascinated with the, the story of my dad and his crew. And it, it, it became my passion. I started reading book after book about the air war over Europe. Mm-hmm. 
went on the, the internet and spent countless hours doing research and downloading declassified military documents. Uh, I went on a quest to uh, find relatives of all my dad's uh, crew members to see if they could share any information with me, articles, mm-hmm. written accounts, pictures, uh, letters, what have you. And I was successful in doing that. Right. And uh, I, I joined a number of World War II organizations. I started going to reunions, listening to veterans tell their stories. And finally, uh, three years down the down the line, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique right. and so compelling that uh, people needed to know about it uh, and read about it. So I decided to write a book. Okay. Uh, from the time I started my research to the time the book was published was four and a half years. Wow. And uh, it took me 12 months to actually write the manuscript and then another eight months to publish it. I actually formed my own publishing company <laughs> called uh, Seabreeze Publishing LLC, which is the name of the street that I live on in Seal Beach, California. Hmm. And then I contracted with independent professionals for all the associated services, such as uh, editing, cover design, interior layout, uh, printing the book. Uh, And it was released in August of 2014. Uh, And since that time, it uh, has won over 25 book awards and it has a five-star rating on, on, on Amazon. Nice. I have to ask, though, because um, so you, you've got these letters between your parents. You've got um, you're exploring, you know, the kind of the wider aspect of the air war. But your book does a lot more than just talk about your father's. I guess you at some point decided to include information about the entire crew and not just your dad, even though he's in charge. He's the captain of the crew in charge of the crew. Uh, correct. Yeah. Initially, uh, I thought it was going to be a story about, or a book about my dad, but I quickly realized it wasn't just about my dad. It was about each member of his crew and also about the, uh, Belgian people that risked their lives, uh, trying to help them, uh, mm. after they bailed out of their, out of their plane. So, uh, yeah, a lot of, I, I, I try to emphasize that this book, although my dad is the main character in the book or person in the book it's uh not a, a, a story about my dad it's about his crew and it's about really all the men who fought in the eighth air force during world war ii yeah i have to say that as someone i listened to your audiobook three times and you're i think you made a wise decision because the context of the wider story really does make your father's story that much more poignant and and the suffering when when they lose friends and because they, they do bond they do become a team and that and that just made it so much more in, in some ways of a tragedy uh for you know for for what happens to some of the people so that so that's my first question again for for a book like this the second question I ask is, how much did I learn from it? Because I've been reading books about World War II since I was 12 years old. But the picture that you paint of what it's like to be an American pilot, the training, everything they have to go through, even when they get over to England, uh, that the, there's additional training, what their life is like over there. So because you threw in so much, that helped me learn a lot. But I have to ask, how much did you know, even though this is like a started out as just a project for you in retirement. How much did you know about the airman's experience when you started researching? Oh, that uh, is a good question. Actually, I've learned uh, a great deal. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the more 
when I started writing the book and I decided to kind of write it in a linear fashion following my dad's letters right. uh, from the time he kind of went into the, 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 the military and then all through his training in, in Europe. And as I was kind of filling in, and because it was based off all those letters, but as I was filling in things, I just became curious to learn more about everything I was writing about. And so anytime I wrote something and I, I wasn't really sure, or I didn't feel I knew that much, I thought, well, if I don't really know about it, the reader's not going to know about it. And I'm curious. So there is a lot of detail in the book uh, because the story itself is based on firsthand testimony right. by the people who were involved uh, in, in the events that took place. What I added was just a great deal of historical information and anecdotes about and surrounding the war to put it in context and, and, and give it background. But I, you know, I didn't know anything about uh, pilot training, uh, so I, had, I learned all, all about that and uh, you know, kind of how they got uh, uh went through training, how they, they got to Europe, uh, to England in, in the first place. And I didn't really know uh, what uh, anything about what happened, uh, why they were England. And so I tried to put that in the book what, because my dad was very candid in his letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so fortunate uh, about that because he, he wrote, wrote about what mis- bombing missions were like. He wrote about what life was like uh, living on the base, what life was like in England and London at the time, escapades of him and his crew. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of gave me think, got me thinking, well, gosh, yeah, you know, let me find out more about that to put in the book. Because I, I, when I was reading all those books, I kind of found that they fell in two categories. One, they were either real large in scope, and they were about all these bomb groups and all these crews and all these missions. Right. Or they're very narrow in scope. They're about one man's experience uh, flying uh, combat missions or more frequently than not you know, becoming a prisoner of war and what that experience was like. But I was following one 10-man B-17 bomber crew and trying to capture, you know, what happened to each of those crew members because something different happened to, to each guy and really anything that could happen, you know, to a airman uh, in the 8th Air Force during World War II happened to one of my dad's, my dad's crew. Uh, I, I, was, I, I was so fortunate, too, to... Uh, have so much information. Uh, I go around the country attending air shows, uh, signing copies of my book. I meet lots of people and I hear the same thing over and over and over again is that, you know, relatives of world war II veterans, uh, whether they're a daughter, a son, a nephew, grandson, what have you, mm-hmm. they know very little about the experiences of their vet during the war. And uh-huh. I you know found out, so much uh, about it. I am just so fortunate and blessed to have had so much information. Okay. Oh, uh, but we're, of course, we're about to jump into your father's experience, but I just have to tell you this before we move on. So I'd listened to your audiobook. I listened to the audiobook version one time, and then the wife, uh, right after I finished listening to it, and I've got all this information from your book crammed in my head, the wife says, what, what does it look like outside? So I look out the window, and I turn back to her, and I'm not even thinking about it, and I say, oh, it's 1010 cloud cover. 
And she's like, what, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's really cloudy. Sorry, honey. I got this book in my head. So I just, just little details like that. I just really enjoyed because again, it was just when you can read a book like this and just, you've learned so much, even though I've been reading for years, that's the kind of stuff I enjoy the most. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of detail in that, in that, like you, like I mentioned in, in you said that they, and I just gained so much information because I knew the story or I knew about, my, I knew most of the details about uh, what happened to my dad. Right. Uh, but it was, I just learned so much more about the air war over Europe um, and really events taking place during World War II. Cause uh, I try to, that's part of the context. I try to put the, uh, the, the, the reader in, mm-hmm. but I have to say uh, one thing, I probably wouldn't have written the book if it wasn't for two Belgium gentlemen. Right. Uh, Dr. Paul Delahaye, uh, who formed the Belgium American Foundation in uh, 1984, it was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. to honor and remember the Allied crewmen that, and uh, really soldiers that liberated Belgium from Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. And the other gentleman, Jacques Lelot, uh, both these men were young boys during the war, and they were greatly affected by it. They saw firsthand the atrocities committed against their family and friends uh, by the Nazis. And later in life, they became local historians, and they interviewed all these Belgian people and members of the underground about events that took place involving my dad and his crew, and they documented that testimony. Uh, and they provided me with unbelievably detailed information about, a, about events that would have been lost forever. Right. Without their dedicated research. So I owe them a great debt. Uh, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Delahaye, he, he died in 2013, uh, but his two of his daughters uh, continue that association. Uh, Jacques Lalo is, uh, is, is still living. I think he's 82, if I remember correctly, and we've become uh, dear friends. Wow. But I, 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 I owe them su- such a debt of gratitude. Because uh, I don't think I could have written the book as, as far as like what had happened in, in Belgium mm-hmm. after the guys uh, were shot down. That makes sense. Yeah, because the detail about their experiences on the ground, um, that that makes a lot of sense that you got that information for them. OK, so let, let's jump into your father's experience. Uh, what was he up to in the United States uh, before he heads over to Britain? Um, he, he wasn't in the army at first. Am I correct? Uh, no. Uh, well, he was, uh, after high school, uh, mm-hmm. he went to work for Desmond's clothing company in Los uh, Angeles. Right. And, uh, then in the fall of 1940, uh, president Franklin Roosevelt implemented the first peacetime draft in history. Right. And my d- dad, uh, signed up for the draft and then went into the, uh, army in the, in April of 1941. Mm-hmm. And went up to. It was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, in the infantry. And then a few months later, in July of '41, uh, he married my mother, Ruth Hempel, uh, in Pasadena, California. She was born and raised in in Pasadena. My dad was actually born in Norfolk, Nebraska. Right. He moved to uh, California with his family when he was thirteen. It was shortly after she graduated from uh, UCLA. And then in December, on December 7th of 1941, a date which will live in infamy, uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and the U.S. was at war. Mm-hmm. 
So my mom was uh, really afraid. Uh, the future was very uncertain. So over Christmas that year, she went up to visit my dad, and uh, she got pregnant. Right. Uh, <laughs> so my dad was kind of concerned at the time. Here he has a new bride and a baby on the way, and he didn't think he could support him very well on a private's pay in the Army. Mm-hmm. So we decided to volunteer for the, for the Air Force. Wow. Yeah. So in 1942, he went into the Air Force, went through pre-fight training in Santa Ana, California, and that started his career uh, in the Air Force. Hey, everyone. Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If I could just ask real quick, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue a story in just a second. But I, when I read that part of your book, I was like, did he do any research into maybe the chances of living as a pilot versus being in the infantry? Or was it just, oh, they pay better and I have a family now, so I'm going to do what I need to do. It's not about whether the the the, the risk to my life is, is any greater. I, this is just something that I need to do. It's all about the money. <laughs> 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 Some things never change. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. I mean, he probably just, oh, they pay more? Okay. But again, that's that's incredibly brave of him. I mean, he's a kid himself, and now he's, you know, he's getting into something he probably really didn't know all that much about, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. He Really, at that point in time, it was all about uh, his love for uh, his new bride and this baby that's coming on the way. That. Mm. All his motivation and all he th- would, could care about was uh, yeah, his, his wife and, and, and baby. And even in the letters, he hated uh, because he had just gotten married and, and you know, while he was in, in the infantry right. uh, to begin with. But then when he was, went into pilot training, you know, here he's away from my mother and, and he was very lonely. He at the times he said, you know, he didn't care if he washed out. You know, he just wanted to be with her. So right. that, uh, that's all he was thinking about. Wow. So um, you go into really uh, uh, good detail about his training. And again, this is something I think gets lost on a lot of people. These guys weren't just put into a uniform and put into a plane and sent over. I mean, there is a ton of training, especially if you're going to be uh, maybe in charge of a crew. Could you tell us some about his, um, his flight training? Sure. Uh, well, there were three stages of, of pilot training, primary, basic, and advanced. Mm. 
And in primary training, uh, the training was actually that the government contracted to flying schools. They didn't actually do the training uh, in primary training. My dad uh, uh, went to Hancock Aeronautical uh, College in Santa Maria, California, where uh, during that training they flew an old uh, Stearman biplane. Hmm. And uh, there was lots of physical training and, you know, uh, learning how to fly, he soloed for the first time uh, in primary training. All right. And then uh, if you passed uh, primary training, uh, then you went into basic training, and there you went from a biplane to a single-wing uh, plane. My dad went through uh, basic training at, at, uh, in California, Lamore, California, and Marana, Arizona. And there you're flying a more complicated uh, aircraft. Right. And pilot training was really difficult. It was forty uh, percent of the guys who went into pilot training washed out. So it was very, very difficult and demanding. Not just learning how to fly, but you had to take mathematics and, and physics and a lot of uh, different disciplines. You had you had to learn. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was tough. Uh, the guys who didn't make it through, they got washed out. They either became navigators or, 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 or bombardiers. Right. But then after basic training, uh, the pilots uh, were separated out uh, to go into advanced training. They either went into single-engine planes or fighters, or they went into uh, twin-engine planes, uh, and then eventually transports or, uh, or bombers. Typically, the shorter pilots went into uh, single-engine planes, fighters, because uh, they were those cramped conditions in the cockpit. My dad was was six three, so they sent him into bombers. But I also think it was based on personality. Uh-huh. Uh, to me, those fighter pilots tended to be pretty cocky, <laughs> big egos, you know, right. be risk takers, independent, and uh, the uh, bomber pilots tended to be a little more level headed and, and, and team players. Right. <laughs> And that's kind of, you know, from the fighter pilots I've met, that, I think that kind of holds true. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's what made them good fighter pilots. Right. And then uh, my, my, my dad went through advanced pilot training in Douglas, Arizona, and he graduated in April of 1943, where he earned his commission as a second lieutenant in his uh, pilot's wings. Mm-hmm. And then he went through transitional uh, training in Pyot, Texas, where he learned how to fly a four-engine B-17 bomber. And f- from there, he went into phase or operational crew training, where the various members of the crew came together, and they learned to operate as a team. That was in Dalhart, Texas. Right. Uh, and then uh, there were 10 uh, me- members in a B-17 crew. And then once they were deemed ready, they were assigned overseas to the European Theater of uh, Operations. Okay, so so he's gone through this extensive training. He's had to earn it every step of the way because, like you said, it is relatively easy to be washed out. But he's gotten through. He's um he's he's over in England, and d- did he have his crew form up in England, or was some of it done before they got there? Because again, these guys are going to have to rely on each other if they're all going to survive this thing together. Oh, he, uh, most of them were assigned uh, to him, and I have the, the, his orders, or the, the orders that were issued, mm-hmm. you know, making up his crew. Once uh, uh, I should t- uh, take a step back, uh, yeah. once you got out of pilot or advanced pilot training, you were either assigned to be the, the first pilot or a co-pilot. Mm-hmm. 
And it's the, it's kind of hard to determine why they assign certain guys to be the the, the lead pilot, the first pilot, and the, as such, the commander of the crew in the plane versus uh, to be a co-pilot. Uh, sometimes it, I think it depended on you know the numbers on whether they had enough lead pilots or not. But my dad, uh, I think, what something in his favor is that you know he was he was he was older than uh, most of the guys going through pilot training, so he's more mature. You know, he's married and has a, a little baby girl uh, by now, so you know that shows responsibility. Um, he was the captain. He was a captain on his high school basketball team, so he had some leadership ability, and he was assistant manager, so he had some managerial uh, experience uh, at that clothing company. So I think some of those combined uh, that they thought my dad would make a, a, a good leader. Hmm. So most of his crew was assigned to him uh, in Dalhart, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's interesting because in the orders there were two guys on his crew that ended up not being on his crew in England. And uh, during my research, uh, I couldn't find out, you know, well, what ha- why, why weren't these guys on my dad's crew if they were assigned to him? Right. But then after I, uh, I found out later, I was reading a book about another crew, and uh, they were talking about the members of, the, of, of that crew, and one of them, uh, was on my dad's crew, was originally on my dad's crew. And it said in the book that he was kicked off his original crew because he was considered kind of a goof-off. So I found out that my dad actually kicked this guy off his crew because I don't know you know, what specifically he, he did to be a, a goof-off. Or, right. uh, but for some reason, my dad didn't think he was uh, up to snuff, and he, he booted him off his crew wow. <laughs> during training. But most of them went over to uh, England uh, with him. Uh, they arrived uh, at the 306 Bond Group on October 21st of 1943. But then he picked up a couple other crew members uh, when he arrived in England. Okay. Now, n- not to jump ahead, but I just have to really mention this because this is something that in some ways I keep forgetting and I need to be reminded of it. And when I am, it absolutely just freezes my heart. If I remember correctly, your father was like 27 or 28 at, around this time when he gets to England. And he's got an 18 year old in his crew. He's got a 20, uh, I think a 21 or 22. I mean, he does have to seem to them to be the old man. Oh, definitely. Yeah. He was, when he got there, he was 27. Mm. Um, well, most of the gunners on every crew were 18, 19 years old. These guys are just right out of high school. Right. You know, which is pretty incredible. You know, and one thing that's pretty amazing, a lot of people really don't think about, that back then, the U.S. was a, a rural country. Most people lived uh, in, you know, on farms. It's unlike today where the vast majority of the people, you know, live in cities. Right. And these guys, a lot of these guys had never been out of their, their home county. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they lived at home with their, with their mother. You know, it was very provincial back then. And all of a sudden, here they are half, you know, halfway around the world, you know, in a, fighting a war. That, that wow. was an exciting time for these guys. Their, their eyes must have been, you know, like saucers uh, <laughs> going over there to London and England. And London at the time was like the... Really, that was the 
there was no city like London in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the major city of the world. And during World War II, because not, uh, Germany had occupied all these countries, there were all these people from different nationalities. Because the, uh, the British Empire was was really, you know, at a, at a, I don't know, not at its strength necessarily, but it was still the British Empire. So, right. you know, you have Australians there, you have, you know, guys from the, Nepal, you know, India, just all over, you know, the globe mm -hmm. who are part of the United Kingdom and fighting for the, for the British. And there's, you know, there's Poles there, there's, you know, just from every country in Europe. So it was really a, a mixture of, of, of cultures. It was, it, was, it was quite a thing for these young guys that all of a sudden, and it was the first time really a lot of these guys have been away from home. Uh, they can do anything they want to, you know. Right. <laughs> they don't have their mother, their pastor, or, you know, <laughs> looking over their, their, you know, these guys, you know, most of these guys never drank before, never smoked before, you know, and here they could, they could smoke, they could drink, you know, they could have sex. Right. Uh, it, it was quite, quite a time for these guys. I just want to interject real quick. One of the out of the many point, points that I enjoyed, uh, parts of that I enjoyed in your book, was that yeah, these American kids come over and they're pretty open and they're gregarious and they're saying hi to everybody, and that's not exactly what British culture is all about. So I imagine it must have been a huge shock, not only for the Americans but for the Britons that are going to be hosting them. I mean, it just must have seemed a, a, an invasion of a different kind to have all these Americans over there. We actually call it the friendly invasion. Uh, <laughs> you're right. You're totally right. Because uh, the, the, the British were pretty reserved. You know, they didn't, they didn't, you don't say hello to strangers because that was impolite. Like you said, the, the Americans, uh, they, you know, they're out, all outgoing and, and, and friendly. So that, that was quite a, quite a shock. And really the Brits didn't have much exposure, uh, to Americans at that time, really all they knew about Americas was what they saw in the movies. Right. So they just thought they had all these, uh, you know, movie stars coming over. <laughs> uh, the young girls were, you know, they were just uh, uh. really taken back because all the, the young men were, they were gone fighting in the war. Right. And here you had this invasion of all these young, virile, you know, <laughs> young guys in their late teens and early 20s. And it was a shock to, uh, to really to both of them. They both spoke English, but they kind of spoke a di different type of English. And the, the U.S. guys, they, they were, uh, for the time, well paid, much better paid than the, than, than the British uh, mm. military. So they could wine and dine these girls and take them out and show them a good time. Back then with a the rationing, you couldn't get, uh, you know, like nylon stockings or candies or cigarettes. And the, the GIs would just shower all these gifts <laughs> on these young girls. Right. And, you know, they, they had stars in their eyes. They were, uh, I think, like 25,000, you know, babies born in England during the war by the, these GIs. And I think there was about 50,000 English brides that came back to the U.S. after the war. Wow. And there was a real, you know, a mixture. I'm sure these girls' parents didn't appreciate these, these sure. <laughs> horny GIs going after their, their, their daughters. But uh, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was quite a time. I was talking to some medics uh, in the 8th Air They said they treated more guys for uh, venereal disease than they did for <laughs> combat injuries. Oh, no. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. That was yeah. life back then. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you just, it's like, we're, we're really sorry. Sorry. We, but this, that's what you do when you're 18. You're, you're, you're girl crazy and you got all this money and you're away from your mom. So yeah, that, that stands to reason. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could, uh, because you do, a, you do a great job in, in describing your father's crew, their various responsibilities, who were officers, who were NCOs. So if you, if you could just tell us about your father's crew and their various assignments on the plane, please, on their B-17. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, there was a 10-man crew. There were four officers mm-hmm. who were up in kind of the, the front of the plane. There was the bombardier in the nose of the plane. Uh, his job was to, the main job was to accurately, uh, drop the bombs. But, uh, in the G model B-17, there were three models of B-17s that were flown in Europe, uh, E model, but there were only about 500 of those built. So those were quickly phased out. The F model came in, but the definitive, uh, B-17 was the G model, Mm. uh, it came in in the fall of 1943 and that had a chin turret under the nose of the plane. So, if the uh, those planes were attacked by German fighters, the bombardier also manned the uh, twin fifty caliber cheek guns in the nose. Right. Then behind him uh, was the navigator. He needed to know where they were and where they were going. But if they were under attack, there were cheek guns on each side of the nose of the plane, the front of the plane, and he manned the, those cheek guns. And then above them sat two pilots. Uh, the lead pilot or first pilot sat in the left seat. The co-pilot sat in the right seat. Really, the co-pilot flew the plane as, uh, as much as the, uh, the first pilot did. Mm-hmm. And then standing behind them was the flight engineer who also manned the top turret when they were under attack. Uh, he was also called the crew chief, and he was uh, uh, onboard mechanic of the plane. He knew how everything worked, and he could do uh, uh, repairs, minor yeah. repairs, uh, in flight, but he also helps monitor all the instruments in the cockpit. In the cockpit, there are over 150 different gauges, dials, switches, toggles, and uh, pretty complicated airplanes. Yeah, uh, he would peer over their shoulders and help monitor engine performance and uh, fuel consumption. And I'll take it aside uh, from that. Uh, these B-17s, uh, when they were first came out, they, they were incredible aircraft. They were very complicated. In fact. On uh, the second test flight, uh, the B-17 crashed Mm -hmm. in 1935, and everyone on the plane was killed. And uh, and the reason why they crashed is that the pilots forgot to uh, – I forget now off the top of my head – forgot to – do something they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they decided these planes are too complicated for a pilot to remember. So we need to create a checklist that they go through and they make sure they, you know, turn everything on or everything off that they should. Right. uh, So the plane flies safely. And that's where the origin origination of the checklist came from Mm. 1935. But I digress there. Uh, and then after the uh, the flight engineer, you had the bomb bay, which is where the bombs uh, hung on racks in the plane. Then behind the bomb bay, you have the radio operator, and he had the most comfortable position on the plane. He was in a relatively little spacious compartment. He had a chair to sit at. Uh, and then below, 
just behind and below him was the ball turret gunner, mm -hmm. uh, the belly gunner, which was the most cramped position on the plane. He sat in this fetal position uh, for hours on end. These bombing missions last six to ten hours, so that was very cramped position. And then ab above him and uh, in the fuselage, they had two waste gunners on either side of the plane, which is the most exposed position on the plane. Right. And, and there was another cramped position way in the tail, uh, the tail gunner, and he manned two 50 caliber machine guns. So the, they had the four officers up in front, and then basically uh, the rest of the men were, were gunners. They were uh, enlisted men, non-commissioned officers. Mm -hmm. and, and at the base, uh, the, the officers and the enlisted men were separated. They really didn't socialize at all on the base. They were tight as could be when they came together, you know, during missions or uh, in training. Right. But they, they slept in different, uh, you know, barracks. They had, you know, an officer's club. They have an enlisted man's club. Uh, when they'd go into London, they typically, you know, the officers would go in together and then the enlisted men would go in together. So they were kind of separated uh, while they were on base. Mm. So I know that there's going to be additional training once they get to England. Again, these these crews need to form together. If if you want to speak to that, that that would be great as well. But if you could combine it with, and I was, and I and I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. You you say in the book, uh, you know, in 1942 and I think early 1943, the U.S. pilots that are going over that are carrying out these bombing raids, they're having a hell, a hell of a time during daylight bombing because they're not being protected. There are no fighters that, that can go with them. So I imagine for 42 and for 43, these very young kids who, like you said, have probably never been outside their county before are now flying over Europe and they're being, you know, shot at by these very fast, nimble German fighters. Correct. Uh, as you say, a, a lot of their time in uh, England was spent with further training, mm -hmm. uh, learning, uh, you know, the, the radio system the, that uh, the uh, the Brits used. Uh, but they had to learn how to fly in, uh, in formations. They they flew in what was called a combat box formation, mm -hmm. where you had the, all these B-17s kind of wingtip to wingtip, and they needed to fly a tight formation to help ward off the uh, the Luftwaffe, the, the, the German uh, Air Force. So that took a lot of a lot of skill uh, because when you're flying in those tight formations, uh, if you don't stay alert, you could clip a wing on the on the plane next to you or run into the plane in front of you and go down. And midair collisions uh, were not uncommon at all. A lot of wow. uh, accidents happened. So they did a lot of formation flying, and also the the, the weather was. Uh, Usually crummy in 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 England. Right. Yeah, it was it was raining or drizzling or uh, cloud cover, snow. So uh, there were lots of times that they couldn't fly. So they were spent in training, either uh, uh, kind of school training mm -hmm. in uh, aircraft identification, uh, you know, weather, uh, this type of thing. So they spent a heck of a lot of time in, in training. Uh, during uh, during their time there, right. as you said, uh, the Eighth Air Force uh, they went over in the, the summer of 1942. Their first mission was on August 17th of 1942. And during at the at the beginning of the war, it was Eighth Bomber uh, 
command's belief that these heavily armed uh, B-17s, they were nicknamed a flying fortress because uh, each plane had 12 to 50, uh, excuse me, 12 to 13 50 caliber machine guns on them. So they could put out a tremendous amount of firepower. Right. So they thought these planes, these heavily armed planes flying into these tight formations, uh, could defend themselves from the, the German Luftwaffe. They also thought they could fly so high and so fast that the, the German fighters wouldn't be able to, to, to catch them. Mm-hmm. And that they didn't need any uh, fighter support, escort support. Uh, but they sadly found out that that wasn't the case, uh, as you indicated in the early uh, years of the war. Uh, the Eighth Air Force took devastating losses, uh, particularly in 1943. Was really brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, there was no mission limit uh, when they started flying, and uh, quickly the morale of these combat crews was going in the tank because they realized that they were never going to make it through the war. Uh. Uh, They'd either be shot down or, you know, and either be killed or, or become prisoners of war. And so in the spring of 1943, it was actually a flight, surge, flight surgeon from my dad's uh, uh, bomb group, the 306 bomb group, Dr. Thurman Schuler, mm-hmm. uh, was responsible for convincing 8th Bomber Command General Ira Eaker to implement a mission limit. He suggested 20. Uh, Eker set it at 25, but at least those guys had, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel and something for shoot to, to, to shoot for, right. to give them some hope. But even implementing that 25 mission limit, it was statistically impossible to finish 25 missions or to complete 25 missions. The average number of missions flown before being shot down was six. Oh, it wow. was it was incredible. And then, as you alluded to. Uh, when they started to give them a fighter escort, the fighters at the time didn't have the fuel capacity to escort the bombers deep into Germany and back. Uh, they could escort them across the English Channel uh, and into occupied Europe a little ways, but then they'd run low on fuel and just have to turn around and uh, head back for their bases in England. Well, the German Air Force would just wait till those escorts turned back, and they then they'd come in and, and swoop in for the kill. Mm-hmm. And this all, the, the losses accumulated uh, or culminated, I should say, in, in the fall of 1943 in October, what was known as uh, Black Week. Right. Uh, they flew four, the 8th Air Force flew four missions during that week, and 148 planes were shot down. It was oh almost, my God. almost 1,500 men. And the worst day was October 14th, uh, the second Schweinfurt mission called Black, referred to as Black Thursday. When the 8th Air Force sent 291 uh, B-17s to bomb the ball bearing factories at Schweinfurt, Germany, and 60 of those 291 planes were shot down. Wow. 600 men. Uh, Ten of the 15 planes that the 306 bomb group uh, sent on that mission were shot down. Well, after that, uh, the 8th Air Force was in shock. Um, th- th- right. There was no way they, they could sustain those type of uh, of, of losses. In fact, they they pretty much stood down. They didn't fly any more missions for the rest of the year in the into Germany, and just flew a handful of missions for the remainder of the year. Wow. Uh, they had to replace all these crews and all these planes. In fact, my dad was he arrived in there on October twenty first. He was one of the replacement crews to that second Schweinfurt mission. And then uh, it really wasn't until 
early 1944, when external fuel tanks were added to the P-47 Thunderbolts and the introduction of the P-51 Mustang, mm-hmm. that bomber formations finally had adequate support. They could take them all the way to the target, deep into Germany and back. Jeez. The, uh, the P-51 Mustang was really uh, effective. Uh, that really, uh, they were responsible for wiping out the, the, the Luftwaffe because by the time D-Day rolled around in uh, June 6 of 44, the German Air Force had pretty much been wiped out by that time. That's incredible. So, yeah. yeah t- uh, Jimmy Doolittle took over the, the 8th Air Force, became commander at the beginning of uh, 1944, and then he eventually raised the mission limits to 30 and then to 35. Oh. I mean, I know the job's got to get done, but you're right. These these guys have got to have something to look forward to. You can't just keep going until either, one, you're dead, or two, the war's over. Right. Yeah. It was Being a combat crewman in the 8th Air Force was the most dangerous duty assignment in the United States military during World War II. Okay. 26,000 men died in the 8th Air Force, another 20. That's more than the entire Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific. Jeez. I think that gets lost. I think that gets lost in the histories about, because, you know, you probably see it as they have this posh job where they just get up, they fly a mission, then they go, and then they can go to the local pub at night. But these guys, until they were able to get proper escort, I mean, they suffered tremendously. Um, I, I just think that gets lost along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And then another 28,000 men were POWs after their bombers were knocked out of the sky, either by uh, German fighters or aircraft fire. Uh, you made a good point about, you know, it was a different kind of war for those guys. It was more impersonal because you're not seeing the enemy face to face. Right. But also here they would go through the, the terror of these combat missions where – their plane would come back full of holes, you know, flak. We, we can talk about that in, in a little bit. Right. Um, men injured, you know, men killed. And then that night, you know, being a pub or being in London, you know, drinking and, and, and chasing girls. Right. So it, it was, uh, it was, but they never knew, you know, then they'd have to go back out on these missions, not knowing if they'd ever return. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it was it was very stressful, you know, not only physically, but 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 mentally on, on these guys and a lot of guys. But, you know, back then got PTSD called, you know, shell shock or flat happy or, or what do you want to call, call it that they just couldn't go on these missions. It, it was brutal. You come back to your uh, especially for the enlisted men, because they, they there were more men to a to a Nissen hut. Mm-hmm. You know, those empty bunk, bunks and then uh, some of the admin staff coming in, cleaning out their lockers or foot lockers, you know, right. to send it home. And then all of a sudden, here's some new young guy you don't know from Adam. So the guys pretty much stuck their, their kept their friendships to their crew members because mm-hmm. it wasn't worthwhile getting to know new guys because they'd just be lost and yeah, it was too painful to lose friends, so you didn't. You just just stuck to a, the guys in your crew. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that the what the stress these American crews went through um, does not get appreciated. So if you could, could you describe a typical mission that the American crews went through? And I also believe that in your book, you, you covered from the point of, of view of a German fighter pilot as well. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll talk, we, yeah I, I did. And we'll talk about that a little later, too. Okay. That's a pretty incredible story. Um, yeah, well, on the day of a mission, if the weather was, uh, uh, suitable to fly, mm-hmm. uh, each bomb group would get, uh, instructions from 8th Bomber Command, and, uh, these guys could be woken up in the, in the early wee hours of the, <laughs> of the morning when it was still dark. Right. They would, uh, go to mess, have 30 minutes, uh, to, to eat breakfast, then they'd go to uh, a briefing meeting. In a Nissan hut, where these guys would find out their their target for the day, uh, the the route that they would fly, both to the target and then coming home, because they'd fly different routes to and from the target. Mm. Uh, what the weather conditions uh, would be, uh, what the uh, air aircraft fire uh, they could expect, uh, what they could expect as far as the way of uh, enemy fighters. Right, and so they'd, they'd get briefed. Uh, then they would uh, go out to the planes, and they'd, they'd start up. And uh, at its peak, uh, the, the the Eighth Air Force had forty uh, bomb groups located in and around an area of England called East Anglia, mm-hmm. which is about the size of Vermont. And these bases are only are all about five to ten miles apart. So on the day of a mission, you'd have hundreds of bombers taken off from these bases all at the same time. Wow. And back then, there wasn't air, any air traffic control. There wasn't any radar. Everything was based on visual sight. As I mentioned earlier, usually the weather was pretty crummy and socked in, and they couldn't see anything until they got above the cloud layer. Right. Uh, so mid-air collisions uh, were not uncommon uh, just getting off the ground. It was dangerous from the time they took off to the, dangerous, to the time they got back. And then, uh, then they'd have to form up. Uh, individual planes would form in, up into three-plane elements. Elements would form up into bomb squadrons. Bomb squadrons would form up into bomb groups. Bomb groups would form up into combat wings. And combat wings would form up into air divisions. And all this would take an hour to two hours before they could ever even begin their, their mission across the English Channel. Right. So that was arduous right then. And then they had to deal with the elements. Uh, these planes weren't pressurized. Uh, so above 10,000 feet, they had to go on oxygen or else they'd soon pass out and then uh, could die. Mm-hmm. And also, it was freezing on these planes. It was minus 60, at minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero. So frostbite was a huge problem. Uh, many airmen were hospitalized with serious frostbite wounds uh, for lengthy periods of time. So one of my dad's... Uh, Waste gunner's John Pendrock, he he was in the hospital for about two and a half months because he had such bad frostbite injuries. And uh, going across the channel, uh, they would kind of get organized. The gunners would fire their guns to make sure that uh, they weren't weren't jamming. And then when they reached the continental coast of Europe, uh, they would meet enemy fighters. The Germans had radar stations set up along the continental coast of Europe, so they knew when these bomber formations were coming, wow. and they'd send up the, their air force, the Luftwaffe, and intercept them. Mm-hmm. So they had to uh, 
fight these uh, all these German fighters, um, typically uh, uh, 109s, ME Messerschmitts 109s or uh, Falk Wolf 190s that would come after them. Uh, when they need near the target, uh, well, they would run into anti-aircraft fire called FLAC. Uh, FLAC was the abbreviation for the German word for aircraft defense cannon. Right. And these guns were, were vicious. Uh, they were <laughs> deadly weapons. They fired 20 shells a minute, and the shells were calibrated to explode at the same altitude that these formations were flying. Uh, and each shell was filled with all different shapes and sizes of razor-sharp metal that would burst out hundreds of feet when they would explode and could easily penetrate the thin aluminum skin of these bombers. The, the skin on these bombers were so thin that you could take a screwdriver and just poke it right through it. Wow. So the, and uh, when they they got near the target, they reached a point called the IP or initial point, and that's where they'd make a turn and they'd start their bomb run. And there they they couldn't take any evasive action. They had to fly straight and steady to the target so they could accurately drop the bombs. And I can't imagine what what that was like because yeah. you'd head into these fields of exploding flak. From a distance, they would look like little innocent black puffs. But as you got closer, those puffs got louder. Uh, the noise became deafening. The shells exploding uh, near the ship would just violently rock the ship, the concussions from these shells exploding. If they, if they hit a, a bomber directly, it would basically uh, disintegrate the bomber. They'd just disappear in thin air. If they knocked a wing off, they, the bombers would just drop like a stone. Hitting in those that that killing fields, you know, I can't imagine what that must have been like. My dad told me that even though it was so cold up there, he'd just be dripping with sweat from <laughs> running through his body, yeah. you know, on those bomb runs. And you're there in your aircraft, and you see these bombers next to you getting shot down, you know, so looking to see if there were shoots, you know, guys bailing out, if there were any shoots, any of the guys got out. So that had to be pretty terrifying. But my dad said, you know, most of these gunners, they're adrenaline, or most of the guys, uh, the crew, I mean, their adrenaline was so running so high that they, during the bomb run that, you know, they they weren't afraid. Right. They had a job to do, and they, they had to do it. And then once they got, uh, they when they started on their bomb run, the first pilot gave control over the plane to the bombardier who would fly the plane through the Norden bomb site that was in the nose. It was tied into the autopilot of the plane, and it was an analog computer that could calculate various factors like the speed of the plane, the, the, the altitude they were flying, the mm -hmm. wind speed, etc., so they could accurately drop the bombs. And once the bombardier uh, released the bombs, he yelled, bombs away, and that signaled the first pilot to take control of the plane again and then make a big turn and go to another designated point called a rally point mm -hmm. where these had made it through the formation would try to form up again and then head back to England where they again would face enemy fighters. So they, again, as I, I mentioned, these, these missions were six to 10 hours uh, in length. So right. it, it was very strenuous, both physically and, and mentally flying on these, uh, flying these missions. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask real quick because I mean, here you are mentioning all these um, fifty caliber guns that are that are 
just sticking out of the B-17. But in some ways, that doesn't matter because because their skin is so thin, it doesn't take much flack to either kill someone or bring down the plane or rip its wing off. But I guess, you know, like you said, they had a job to do, and it's best just to get it over with. And that's your only course for trying to end your having to fly, is to get up there and try to end the war as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. That. Uh... I, uh, I heard reading one book, or I forget where I heard this, but uh, there was one airman that said that they, on those missions, going over, flying to the target, they were flying for, uh, you know, Uncle Sam or for the 8th Air Force, but right. flying, they were flying for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't blame them. I, I just have to ask, when they were coming home, obviously they've gotten rid of their bombs and their planes are a lot lighter. Did they fly home as fast as they could, or I guess it was more important to stay in formation so they could have that mutual protection? Absolutely, yeah. They, uh, most of the planes that got shot down, you know, they, they ended up, they were lagging behind the formation uh, for one reason or another. One, either they weren't flying a tight formation, that pilot you know, wasn't uh, uh, a good enough pilot, uh, or he, he lacked concentration, or the, the plane was, had battle damage. Right. Uh, either from flak or enemy fighters, and then they couldn't keep up with the, the formation. So, yeah, they, they were, uh, you know, a dead duck if they lagged behind, and because uh, then you could be singled out by the, by the German fighters. But they would limp back home, and uh, again, it was dangerous because a lot of the, with the English weather, a lot of times they couldn't land at their base, their own base. They'd have oh. to land some other base, right. either because uh, they were running low on fuel, uh, they were, you know, the engines were going out. They couldn't make it any further, or they would just land at the first base they saw just to get the plane down on the ground. I, I just have to say real quick, when when I got to the part in the book about your father first getting there and flying missions, I know he had to fly as a co-pilot until he got a feel of it. I lost count of the times that missions had to be scrubbed or transferred or delayed because the weather was just so darn bad. You, you got the sense that maybe they felt the weather was almost as bad as an en- of an enemy as the Germans were. Oh, they, yeah, they, they hated for missions being scrubbed. I mean, their their goal was to get the 25 missions or whatever the mission limit was right. and get home. Ah. And so they wanted, they wanted to get these missions over with. So, uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times the weather was so bad that they didn't even attempt to go on missions, but there were other times when they, they would either be in their bombers on the ground with their engines going, be ready to take off, or they were already in the air on the way to the mission, but then the weather so was so bad at the target right. that they were asked to return, or they had a mechanical failure uh, in route over the channel and had to turn back. And that was really, uh, would wear on them, because here they had to go through all the this, this stress right. uh, and tension of getting ready for the mission, you know, getting in their planes, anticipating the mission, uh, and if they had taken off and they were, they had to go through the the danger of midair collisions, like forming up and all all through that, only to have to turn back right. because of mechanical failure or because of weather conditions. And you know, they went through all that mental anguish for nothing. Right. My, it really yeah. uh, ticked my dad off when they when a mission was scrubbed or they'd have to return from a mission, and you know, without getting credit for it. Yeah, because I, I was going to say, I mean, you might be in your 20s, but that kind of thing has got to age you 
um, so much. And and I'm probably and I'm guessing here, but I think I remember from your book something like five percent of all the various crews. I mean, you know, either died or were injured from mid-air collisions. And like you said, it was a very risky risky thing just trying to form up with that cloud cover even before heading across the English Channel. Exactly. Jeez. Exactly. All right. Okay. So your father has got his crew. They they've done their additional training. They've started their um they started their missions again, trying to reach whatever number has been set for them, so they can go home or or get a break. And I know a lot of the guys were having fun. Your your father, because he was married and had a child, he was he was he was behaving himself. And we'll get into this later. But I absolutely loved the letters that were going back and forth between your, 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 your father and your mother, just, just the affection, but we'll get into that. Um, could you tell us about the day your father's plane was shot down? Sure. Um, it was on, uh, February 8th, uh, 1944, mm-hmm. uh, a mission to Frankfurt, Germany. And, uh, that night before, uh, he and the other officers of the crew, uh, went to a, a pub called the uh, the Falcon right. uh, near their base. And that's still there today. I've been there wow. and had a few pints there myself. Well, they, they really tied one on. Uh, he said in his diary that uh, they all had hangovers, but because uh, breathing that pure oxygen, you wow. know, uh, in the plane that sobered him up. Uh, real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so he was happy about that. Right. But that was a, that was a thrill for me when I went to, uh, uh, to England uh, in 2014 and went to the, the Falcon pub and uh, had a few pints where my dad uh, drank the, the night before his last mission. That was pretty special. Mm-hmm. Nice. So they're, they're, they're on their mission and uh, they dropped their bombs successfully, uh, but their bomb bay doors got hit by flak and they couldn't get them back up. Mm. And that caused a drag in the plane. They lost airspeed, and uh, they couldn't keep up with the the, the formation uh, heading back to England. Right. And so they, they started lagging behind, and they were singled out by two uh, Focke-Wolf 190 German fighter planes who came in for the for the kill. Mm-hmm. And then the ensuing air battle, uh, his plane was the Susan Ruth. Uh, his plane was named the Susan Ruth after my oldest sister. Mm-hmm. who was one year old at the time that he went overseas in 1943, Susan Ruth Snyder. Uh, the Susan Ruth was, was shot down right over the French-Belgium border. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the crew were killed in the plane from the 20-millimeter cannon fire from these uh, Fock Wolves, and the other eight crew members were able to uh, bail out successfully. But both those two German fighters uh, were shot down. Mm-hmm. Uh, one... Uh, piloted by Siegfried Merrick, crashed, and he was killed in the plane. Right. Uh, he couldn't, couldn't really determine who shot that plane down. The other plane was uh, piloted by Hans Berger, uh, and that his plane was actually shot down by, by my dad's gunner, so they really shot each other down. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but Hans was able to, to bail out, and uh, he, he made it uh, through the war. And one thing I'll mention about, you know, it's interesting during these missions about you know, who gets credit for shooting down uh, German fighters. Because right. a lot of times you had multiple B- gunners from multiple B-17s all shooting at the same German plane. Mm-hmm. And at times you even had, uh, you could have American fighters shooting at that plane at the same time. And these 
the closing speed on these planes, you know, the, the bomber, the, the, the bombers are going about 150 to 180 miles an hour, mm-hmm. but these Falkwell fighters are going you know, 300 miles an hour. So, you know, the, 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 the closing speed, you know, you're talking about 450 miles. So you only had seconds to shoot. Right. Uh, either the German pilots or the American gunners. So it, it, it was really hard to determine, you know, for the most part, who shot down planes and, and, and who got credit for them. Sure. But you're dealing with Americans who have egos and everybody wants to get credit for, for shooting oh, down yeah. the planes, I'm sure. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, I'll, I'll t- talking about Hans Berger, when the, when I was doing my research, uh, one day my wife just casually asked, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? Which I thought was a, you know, I didn't say this to her at the time, but I thought <laughs> it was a ridiculous idea. You know, she, she doesn't know what she's talking about. That'd be right. impossible, you know. Yeah. He probably died in the war. Or he 70 years later, he's passed on by now. Yeah. I can't speak German. You know, it's, but she kind of harped on me. And so, you know, like a good husband, I did what she told me to do. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> and lo and behold, I found Hans Berger. And fortunately for me, he became a translator after the war. So, you know, he speaks perfect English. Oh, wow. And I, for the book, I just interviewed him through uh, the telephone or by telephone and through email. And he gave me some wonderful insight that's in the book about what it was like to go up against the 8th Air Force. He's mm-hmm. 95 years old now. Uh, in 2016, I went to Munich, Germany, where he lives and filmed, uh, met him face to face and uh, filmed an interview with him. Right. Uh, He's 95 years old, and uh, I hope to. Uh, I'm making my sixth trip to uh, Belgium this fall, and uh, hopefully he'll be in good enough help, health still that I can go visit him uh, again in Munich. If I can just ask real quick, I mean, you're, you're talking to the man that helped shoot down your father. I mean, what were your what were your emotions and what were your feelings? Was it uh, you were doing your job, my father was doing his job? I mean. I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I get asked now and then, well, don't you hate this guy that shot down your dad's plane? And, yeah. uh, oh, I don't. I, I was all, all until that time, you know, all I knew, all my dad knew was that they were shot down by all the, the two German fighters. And right. to find the pilot that shot him down, yeah. I was absolutely thrilled. But the way I felt the personal relationship to, uh, Hans, actually, because at one moment in time in history, my dad's uh, life and his life crossed paths. Mm -hmm. And World War II was really the defining moment of my dad's life, really, for all those guys who were in it. I mean, and so I I felt a a bond with Hans. And like you mentioned, he was pretty much just like the uh, U.S. Airman. He was 20 years old. you know, fighting for his country, trying to do a job and trying to stay alive. Right. And he said it was a shame that they had to be, you know, shooting each other. But, you know, their their countries are at war and he was defending his country, his homeland. And yeah. that, that's, that's the way it was. So I don't hold any really animosity uh, towards him at all. It was uh, when I met him in person uh, at his apartment in, in Munich, he brought out his flight log and showed me his entry. On February 8th the 44, where he wrote down that he shot down a B-17 and he had to bail out because he was shot down as well. He was actually shot down three times. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, the, the, the Luftwaffe pilots, they had no mission limits. They didn't even get leave or passes like the U.S. airmen did. Right. So most of all of his friends all died during the war. It was amazing that you know, he made it through. Absolutely. Um, yeah, feel free to talk about him some more, but when you're ready, um, if you could give us a little bit about your father's, and you can, you can however you want to do it, either him, him coming down or some of the experiences he had on the ground once he, once he parachutes down. Sure. Uh, being the commander of the plane, uh, he was the last one out, and uh, he and his plane actually came down in Belgium, right. and the rest of the crew that were, who were able to bail out came down in France. It was right over the border. Ah. And he came down uh, in a little uh, village, or near a little village called Mackinac, Belgium, was right on the near the French border. And his parachute came down and uh, landed in some trees, and his parachute got hung up in the trees, and he was dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, uh, two uh, young Belgian gentlemen, Henri Franken and Raymond Durand, uh, came to his rescue uh, before the Germans got to him. Uh, They went back to a farmhouse, got a ladder and a rope, helped, helped him down a tree. And this occurred about one o'clock in the, in the afternoon. Uh, so they, they thought it was too dangerous to move him during daylight. So they told him to hide and stay put till, till the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they come back and get him because there were German patrols combing the area looking for these guys that had bailed out trying to pick him up. So that night they, uh, they came back and uh, took him to the, the home of uh, Raymond Durvan and her, his parents, <clears throat> which was right on the French border. He only stayed there one night because they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with those German patrols right. home in the area. So that night, a, a Belgium customs officer, Paul Tilquin, or Tilcan, I should say, pronounce it uh, in French, uh, came on a tandem bicycle to take him to another location. And they, they headed out that night. My dad could only pedal with uh, one leg because he had uh, shrapnel wounds from that anti-aircraft fire and the, and the German 20-millimeter cannons. Right. Uh, it was pitch black, it was uh, rainy, and they, they headed out. Uh, and he could only pedal with, that, with his good leg. And they came to a hill and couldn't pedal anymore, so they started pushing the bike up the hill. Right. He got to the top of the hill. They came to a, a little cafe, a cabaret, and... The lights were on, music was playing, there was loud talking and laughter, and all of a sudden walk out two German officers with their arms around young uh, Belgium or French girls. Mm-hmm. And one of them comes up to my dad and asks him for a light uh, or a light for a cigarette. Oh, my dad can't speak French, French or English, <laughs> doesn't know what to do, but fortunately Paul did and lit the guy's cigarette. Right. Went on their way. My dad said these officers were, were too drunk and too interested in these young girls <laughs> much attention to uh, you know, a couple of jokers pushing a bike up in the, in the, in the rain. So he narrowly escaped that one. And, uh, after that, uh, he was moved from place to place to place. Uh, how long he stayed in any uh, home and Belgium depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He uh, might stay one night at a house. He might spend six weeks uh, uh, at, a, at a house. And the people that hid him, or any down there, but for that matter, were unbelievably brave. Uh, yeah. They risked their lives and those of their friends and family by aiding down airmen. If the uh, German secret police, the Gestapo, found out, they'd be uh, arrested, uh, 
interrogated, tortured, and then either shot or sent to concentration camps. And some of the Belgian people that helped my dad and other crew members did meet that fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Silken, who I just mentioned, he was arrested a couple months later and was tortured, sent to prison, and he narrowly escaped uh, being executed. Uh, but his health was broken from the beatings he took, and he died in his uh, early 50s. So they, uh, those people were, were unbelievably brave. I, I just want to ask real quick, if I could. I mean, I imagine we were talking a couple of minutes ago about you, people like your father. They would have this absolute adrenaline rush, come back at night where things were semi-calm. But now he's trapped on enemy soil, and he doesn't have anything to do. I mean, he's just got tons of time on his hands, which is, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's easy, but what I'm saying is that's so different from what he was going through. That in itself must have been a different form of stress for him. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, here he's, his plane's attacked. It's on fire. He has to bail out. He comes down, you know, from a foreign country, he has no idea where he is. Uh, doesn't know what happened to his buddies on the crew, can't communicate with the with the U.S. military, and here he's uh, interacting with people that he can't even communicate with at that initially because he can't, they can't speak English, he can't speak French, he has a little, as part of his escape kit, he has a little French-English di- uh, dictionary right. uh, that he can refer to. Uh, any of these people could be a, a collaborator and turn him over to the Gestapo, and when he's hiding in these houses, the Gestapo could break in, uh, you know, any time, night or day. Yeah. Which and he came, had some real close calls that uh, are in the book, described in the book, and be arrested and either shot or, or sent to a, a POW camp. So it was very stressful on him. Normally, when the underground in these occupied countries came across down airmen, they tried to get him back through England through various escape routes. Mm-hmm. Uh, down through France, uh, over the Pyrenees into British or into Spain, and then out through British-controlled Gibraltar. Uh, but something always went wrong uh, trying to get him out there. Like, uh, you know, four or five times where it looked like you know they might be able to get him out, but something always went wrong. Uh, uh, for one reason or another, you know, maybe uh, there was a collaborator who was infiltrated by a, a German spy. Uh, who knows? Uh, so that had to be very stressful on him. And finally, he got tired of hiding. Uh, he, he got – the stress got to him. Plus, he, you know, he, word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy mm. on June 6th. Uh, and so he knew the Allies were going to be coming up through France at some time. So he decided to get back into the fight. He had that year's training, infantry training, while he was uh, in the Army in Washington. Uh, so he knew how to fight on the ground, unlike you know, other, most other airmen you know, who just went right uh, into the Air Force. You know, he knew how to dig a foxhole and fire rifle, uh, machine guns and, and rifles. And you know, he was experienced in that. So he decided he wanted to join the French resistance. <laughs> and, That's brave. Yeah, uh, unbelievable, because he could just, you know, stay uh, hunkered down and waited for the U.S. Uh, troops to come up mm-hmm. uh, to be liberated. But he wanted to get back in the fight. And this, the, the, the people that were hiding him at the time, they, they were you know, trying to argue with him and convince him not to do that. <laughs> right. It was way dangerous. But he told him, well, if, if you don't uh, 
help me. I'll just take off on my own then and try to meet up with them. And they couldn't let him do that because that, that, you know, that was not going to be successful. So right. one of his helpers called, uh, her name was Amy Cools. They uh, went on bicycles uh, across the border from Belgium down in France, and he hooked up with a, a resistance group. Uh, the French resistance were known as the Mackie. Right. And they were made up of independent uh, small bands of guerrilla groups all across France. In his group, there were about 20. They were led by a uh, French lieutenant who had escaped from a POW camp. And they, their job was basically, the, the, the resistance basically harassed the Germans. They would uh, disrupt uh, communications, sabotage railroad lines, uh, attack convoys, assassinate German officers. Mm-hmm. And they got their instructions uh, from the British over the BBC through coded messages. Right. And my dad said the information they provided was unbelievably accurate. If they said a German convoy was coming down this road on this date at this time, sure enough, they'd be there. And that was a result of uh, the British breaking the uh, German secret code, uh, the Enigma code. So they knew all the actions of the German military. You mentioned... he, he fought with the uh, yeah. resistance for uh, several uh, several months, and there's a number of uh, accounts in the book about uh, encounters that the uh, the Mackey group did have uh, with with German convoys. Because uh, you you make a good point. I mean, here your father is he he doesn't have to fight. He could just lie low, and in fact, it would be better for the locals if he did lie low. But he has his own form of bravery, and, and another form of bravery is, is like you were saying, those locals who are risking their lives trying to help him, trying to hide thousands of, uh, of allied pilots who were down, um, and, and, and at the same time giving information to London and, and to the allied forces because they are coming that way, but again, risking their lives and their families' lives every single day, every time they go out. Yeah, they, they, they saved my dad's life without a doubt, and they were wonderful people. My dad said that they let him sleep in their bed. You know, they sleep on the floor. Right. Uh, food was scarce back then because of the rationing uh, uh, by the Germans. Mm-hmm. There was a black market. My dad said, you know, some of the houses he stayed, if the people had a little money, they could buy you know, extra uh, provisions on, on the in the black market. Uh, and then he made some uh, – lasting friendships uh, with some of those people that he stayed with long periods of time and he stayed in contact with uh, after the war. I, I was fortunate to meet one of his helpers, uh, Paul Tilkins, Tilkins' wife, Nellie, right. on my first trip uh, to, to Belgium. That, uh, that, that, that I can't stress enough, you know, how brave those, those, those people were. Because there were collaborators, too, all over the place that would, right. uh, you know, turn these people in. Um, collaboration was uh, was pretty commonplace. You know, either you had people that believed in fascism, right. uh, agreed with the Nazis, or people that thought, well, the Nazis are going to win the war, so I might as well be on the side of the winning <laughs> winning country. Right. Or then there's other people that just wanted to uh, take advantage of it, you know, financially. Mm. Uh, and then you then there's 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 cases of people that just had a grudge against another person wow. and they, they would tell the Gestapo oh, that that person's part of the underground when they weren't part of the underground, you know, just to get back at them, to, to take over their land or, right. uh, yeah, it was, you know, people can be, you know, very, very cruel and mean. 
Yeah, but humans are flawed and, and nothing's changed, uh, you know, thousands of years. So, so Mr. Snyder, I'm going to let you decide where we end. So here's your father. He's he's helping the fresh re- French resistance. He doesn't know about the rest of his crew because they, they came down in other areas. But all he can do is, I guess, just kind of do his part, try to survive and help the French and the Belgians until the, until the allies show up from landing in Normandy. So um, if there's anything else you want to add to that, you certainly can, but I think we'll just leave a lot of it for what's left for the readers. Cause um, I did listen to this book three times on the, on the audiobook, and I enjoyed it very much. And I don't want to rob other readers from the pleasure that I had about finding out how this ends. Sure. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit. Sure. Um, one thing about the audio book is that you don't get any pictures. Uh, in the print book, there's over 200 time period photographs. Wow. Um, so you can visualize everything that you're, uh, that you're reading about. And many, many, many of those pictures were either sent to my dad by his helpers after the war, mm-hmm. or they were provided to me by those two Frenchmen uh, that, that were young boys, Jacques Polo and Paul Delahaye. Uh, unbelievable pictures that were taken uh, in 1944 on the ground in Belgium. Uh, but to get back to uh, my dad, mm-hmm. it was about uh, almost exactly seven months from the time that his plane was shot down uh, while he was uh, with the uh, French resistance. Uh, word came that U.S. troops uh, were in the nearby village of Trelone, France, right. just across the border from Belgium. Uh, so my dad uh, walked into uh, the town, into the, the village square, uh, came up to a, an army major. Actually, it was an element of Patton's Third Army, who had, which had come up through France after D-Day, mm-hmm. identified himself. Uh, they interrogated and made sure he wasn't a, a German infiltrator. Ah. Uh, and then once he, they were satisfied, uh, he got a, a ride to, to Paris with a convoy that was taking German prisoners uh, to Paris. And then in Paris, he hopped on a C-47 and got back to England and uh, then sent a telegram home to my, to my mother saying that he was alive. Oh. My mother, that was really hard on my mother because my other sister, Nancy, right. was born while he was missing in action. So my mom was back home with a one-year-old daughter, an infant uh, baby girl, not knowing if she'd ever see her, her husband again. So uh, you can't uh, imagine the, the joy of uh, my mother and my dad's parents and, and relatives when they heard that he, he was alive. I, I, I'm sorry, I just want to ask, I guess your mother is informed by the military. Look, we don't know what happened. We're not saying he's dead. He's just missing in action, and we honestly have no idea what his status is. And she has to live with that for seven months? Yes. Uh, they were shot down on February 8th. She got a telegram from the War Department on February 23rd right. saying that the plane was shot down and uh, the crew was missing in action. Right. And uh, she got another follow-up letter. I think it was in, uh, let's see, uh, a few months later saying, you know, they still didn't have any new information that many times, you know, Airmen who were shot down became prisoners of war, so, you know, he might turn up type of thing. Right. And during that time, since I guess my mother was the, was the wife of the, of the pilot, mm-hmm. she was kind of the, the central point for the families back home. Uh, so 
there were lots of exchange of letters, either from you know mothers, sweethearts, members of the family, other wives, but between my mother, and she kept those letters. And there's excerpts from those letters, uh, as you had mentioned in the book, and that's really emotional because you can just feel you know the the heartbreak of these their relatives and loved ones back home, not knowing if they'd ever see their their son or husband or, or boyfriend, what have you, again. Uh, pretty, pretty heart wrenching stuff. Right. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. So in some ways your mother was the leader of the wives, just like your father was the leader of the crew. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, then, uh, after they sent him home from England, uh, at the time, if you were shot down over occupied territory and helped by the underground, you couldn't fly again because the air force thought if you were shot down a second time, and captured by the Germans and tortured by the Germans, that you'd give up the identity of the people that helped you the first time. Oh. So they sent my dad home. The only exception to that rule that I'm aware of is Chuck Yeager, who personally met with uh, General Eisenhower and talked <laughs> him, letting him go back into combat. Wow. Yeah. But your father's probably, I've done my part. It's, it's time for me to go home. Yeah. yeah. And then he <laughs> became a B-17 flight instructor, uh, back in, in the States in Florida and uh, Ohio until the, the uh, war ended. Uh, the only other thing I'll, I'll say about the crew is that five of the crew members made it back home, but five of them did not. Right. Yeah, and to find out, you'll have to, to check out the book. Mr. Schneider, I, I know that, if I remember correctly, you have your own website where people can buy the book, um, but obviously they can buy it other places where you can buy books. I, I do want to say, obviously, I have to get a copy of this because 200 photos is just way too tempting. However, the gentleman that did do the reading on your audiobook did a great job. He had a, it, just the way his voice and the way he presented it. It really did um, make a huge difference of having that in my ear. And I, I just enjoyed the way he told the story by reading your book. Thank you. Uh, yeah, he did a good job. It was a real challenge because uh, half the, the the first half of the book builds up to the day that the plane was shot down, and the second half of the book is all about what happened afterwards. Right. And there's so many French names and words and German names and words, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really real challenge for him to pronounce. Right. <laughs> you know all, all those words and and, and names. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he made it through though. So um, yeah, yeah, he did a good job. And so, as far as yeah. uh, my my website is stevesnyderauthor.com and on my uh, the homepage of my website, if someone wants an autographed book, they can purchase one uh, uh, via credit card uh, through PayPal through there. But like you said, it's available uh, where other books are sold in whatever format: uh, print book, soft cover, hard cover, ebook, and all formats and. Uh, uh, the audiobook. Excellent. I'm going to have to get me one to go along with my audiobook. So this is uh thank you very much, Mr. Steve Snyder. The book is Shot Down, the True Story of Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. Mr. Snyder, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for this book. Well, thank you again having me on your 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 program, and uh, it was an honor and a privilege uh, to write that book, and it's really changed my life. Uh, I basically work full-time or have a full-time job again, uh, speaking to all sorts of organizations, going around the country, attending air shows, signing copies of my, my book. So it, it really has changed my, in my life, and it's, uh, it's my passion. I, I love to do it, uh, 
and uh, it, it's I've met so many wonderful people, meet veterans, uh, and it's great to tell the story of those uh, brave men who fought and died for freedom so many years ago. It's our it's we can never forget their sacrifice. Absolutely. And, and my little tag log, actually, it's it's our duty to remember. Absolutely. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you.